Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Today, I'm interviewing Matthew Frederick, who is a very experienced real estate investor with many years and decades of experience. I will not age him, but he's been on the show a couple times. And today we are talking about stabilizing real estate investments and our investments in this unpredictable market. We also talk about some storage unit stuff. We talk about different challenges that you know, we are facing and how to overcome them and lots of other things in between. So hope you guys enjoy today's podcast. But before we do, Dahlia from Streetwise Mortgages, what is this week's tip of the week? Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages. Spring has sprung, and we're starting to see purchase activity come back to the market. In fact, we're starting to see multiple offers all over again in some markets. On that note, I wanted to share with you a tip about amortization because as you arrange for a mortgage, amortization obviously is going to have a big impact on your ability to pay that mortgage fast or slower, as well as on your cash flow. Here's something about amortizations that many clients don't know about. On the residential side, meaning one, two, four unit properties, rental properties, including sometimes five or six unit rental properties, clients assume that they can qualify for 30-year amortization. On the multi-family front, clients assume that they can get a 15-year amortization with CNC. Both of these things are true. They are options that are available to you. However, amortization is bound by what's called the economic life of the property. Think about it this way. If you're going to lend money on a property, you want to make sure that property is going to outlive the loan. So if a lender is giving you a loan at a 30-year amortization, they want to make sure that property is going to outlive that 30-year by at least five years. The economic life is something that the appraisers talk about in the appraisal report. And the age of the property, as well as its condition, influence that number. I've seen sometimes amortizations come below what's expected. However, going back to the appraiser with context around what the property is all about, any work you've done on it can sometimes help the situation. And I've seen appraisers reconsider the economic life with proper context because a lot of things can really go wrong based on assumptions and clarification communication and context are everything. So keep that in mind. Now, if you're going to select amortization, assuming the economic life is there, I invite you to consider the longest amortization that is possible. So on a residential property, go for a 30 years. If you are qualifying with a B lender, take the 35 year or the 40 year. On the commercial side, multifamily side, if you're applying for a CMHC mortgage and the property qualifies, take the extended amortization. Why? Because an extended amortization is going to offer you breathing room. It will help your cash flow, especially in these markets we're in right now. Give yourself choices. You can always control what's called the effective amortization on a mortgage through the prepayment privileges. So let's take a 30-year AM mortgage. 
if you were to go with a bi-weekly accelerated payment, you can cut off about four years of the life of that mortgage. You can cut that down to about 26 years. What you will see in the market is that some lenders are going to offer you discounted rates on shorter amortizations. Don't be tempted to just look at the rate. Look at the big picture. Yes, you're going to get a more expensive rate taking a 30-year but if you go to a rate calculator and run them out, you will see that your cash flow is going to be better as a result of the extended amortization despite the higher interest rate. And then you can choose how fast or slow you want to go. To support investors who are currently purchasing properties, we are offering a fantastic promotion, not just in Ontario, but across many other provinces, including Alberta, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, and New Brunswick. And here is what it is. If you are buying a residential property of one to four years, and you are submitting an offer to us within the next 90 days, regardless of the closing date, then we are happy to cover all of your legal fees, excluding disbursements, if you're buying something $700,000 or more. And we would cover half of your legal fees, excluding disbursement, if you're buying something $500,000 or more. If you are in the market for a monthly family property, whether you're purchasing or refinancing, then we are giving back $5,000 cash back for loan amounts above a million dollars. Again, if you submit your deal to us within the next 90 days, regardless of the closing day. We are here to support you. We're happy to answer any of your questions. If you would like to utilize these promotions, email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com and use the code cover my legal fees. Awesome, Dahlia. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you are on Instagram, add me at Investor Sarah Larby. I only have one. Or you can also add the resort too which is Inspire Beach Resort. And check it out on our website. We've just revamped with some all-inclusive options, romantic packages, and many more. So you can check that out at inspirebeachresort.com or add me on Instagram, Investor Sarah Larbia now with the show. Matt Frederick, welcome back to the show. How are you? I am fantastic. Always great to be here with you, Sarah Larby. Awesome. All right, cool. So you've been on the show for... Probably this is your fourth time or fifth time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. But I wanted to bring you back today because you've been doing this for a very long time, investing in real estate. I mean, I'll let you, you know, age yourself. I won't do it for you. But with that said, though, there's lots of ups and there's lots of downs that you've experienced along the years. And, you know, as the market changes and as there's a lot of uncertainty, I thought it would be good to bring you back and talk about some of that because you've been through it before. And I think a lot of people that haven't been investing you know, for let's just call it five years or whatnot, they've only seen the good. Uh, they haven't seen any downs. And so, you know, there's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of fear out there. And then there's some light at the end of the tunnel down the road. So, but before we get started, like how long have you been doing this for? And when did you actually get started? So I bought my first duplex in 1984. And in 1984, my interest rates were about 11.4%. And I was thinking, you know what? I love it because in 81, before I started investing, which is three years before I started, interest rates were 19.1%. So when I saw 11.4, 11.7, I'm like, man, there is a God. I love it. It's amazing. 
And I remember in 1994, rates went down to about 6.7%. And I'm like, there's a God and a Santa Claus. And then by 2004, rates were around, let's say, 3.7%, 3.4%. And I'm like, man, could it get any better? And of course, we ended up seeing 2009, 2010 down below 1%. But most of my investing career, 39 years now, you know, I was born in the dark. This nice interest rates, these low interest rates, you know, you guys are just renting it. Okay, awesome. So you've obviously been doing this for a while now. Talk to us a little bit about like maybe some of the downs that you've seen, like the economic down, you know, trends because everything's cyclical. You know, what years, you know, you were seeing and what was happening and what you did specifically at that point with your investments. Well, I mean, today there's a realization that a lot of people, as you mentioned, have only seen the up cycle. Mm -hmm. For me, I've had a chance to experience the true cycle, which is about seven to 12 years where the market goes up and it comes down and it goes flat. That, that it becomes to pick up to boom, start, starts again. A lot of people enjoyed such a very long up stretch from probably about 2001 to about 2017, 18, 19 in Ontario that they figured, you know what, this is the way it's going to be. A lot of folks quit their job on the up swing, which made a lot of sense. But now the downswing is happening and we have to have the flat period and then the pick up again. People have to learn to obviously adjust or fight in that realm. But there's a major difference for when I started, even though interest rates were like 11, 11.4, 11.7%, is that my first house was around $100,000. And the average person was making about maybe $42,000. So that's about two and a half years of someone's salary to buy a house. Today, if the average person in Canada makes about 75, 80,000, you know, the average house is about $800,000 in a mm -hmm. non-Toronto market. Guess what? That's eight years of someone's salary. So yes, we had high interest rates, but we didn't have ridiculous, stupid, crazy high pricing as you have today. And when I experienced down markets or recessions, there's very low unemployment. In the US right now, it's like 3.4% unemployment, the lowest ever. So this is weird that it's low unemployment. At the same time, rents are crazy high because normally in a down period, you have, low, you have high unemployment. You have crazy low rents. At the same time, you have low prices and you have high inflation. So things are a little bit different, which means there's no roadmap. Just because someone's experienced it before doesn't mean they have an answer for the future. But the good news is because they've experienced it before, they're able to adapt to it quickly. You know, that blow to the stomach happens and then they could get back on their feet right away and start running. So that's what I've seen as a difference from, let's say, back in the day and now. And I've experienced about four market drops because I invest in BC, Alberta, Ontario, the US. So I got hit in 2000, you know, in 94, in 2000, the dot-com bubble bust. I got hit in the US in 2007, 2008. I got hit in Alberta in 2014, 2015, in BC, 2018. Right. Ontario investors have been getting little slaps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a much longer... I guess, market cycle versus in Alberta, somewhere where, you know, they're kind of highly driven by oil and gas. And I know Eastern Canada also saw those effects in 2014, 2015, but Ontario was like in a bubble in a sense. Um, or, you know, they were essentially like not, you know, part of this whole up and down with the oil and gas industry. But, you know, obviously you're in a lot of different markets. I think you're out of Canada as well with some investments. But what are some things that you did as the market was 
shifting and going downwards? Were you keeping? Were you selling? Were you buying? Like, what were you doing? So I had to switch from a anti-collector mindset where people buy property and they hold forever. Change that way of thinking. I had to change it to more like I'm a baseball coach. So I'm coaching a baseball team. But let's just say that it's the bottom of the ninth, which means your team's up to bat, last team up to bat, tied score. Uh, you have somebody on first on second base. Guess what? You may have to sacrifice Bunt, the first guy, because he wants to hit a home run. He wants to buy a property, hold a property. And then when second base goes to third base, next guy up wants to home run it. But nope, they have to uh, sacrifice pop fly all the way to the back to let the third baseman get in, which means I have to sell a few things that I didn't want to sell. I had to sacrifice my two batters to get that second base batter home. And uh, I had to change my mentality about that. Sell what I didn't want to sell to survive. At the same time, I had to reduce a lot of expenses. And a lot of people ask, how do I increase revenue? That's important. But for me, I had to reduce my expenses. So I had to drop my water bill as fast as possible, which means the right toilets, make sure people don't, you know, spend a lot of time in the shower singing. You know what I mean? You know, forget the tubs more, the showers, dishwasher, dryer, sorry, dishwasher and the washing machine. Those things that drain a lot of water, I control that. Went energy efficient on my fridge, my AC and things like that. Repairs, I did pre-repairs. So I didn't have these massive repairs hit me. I screen my tenants better so that they don't have three people moving in, although one's on the actual board itself. At, when it comes to buildings, I try to avoid elevators because they're very costly. Reduce my garbage, lawn, snow, and you know, I mop the halls myself. Even though I had like many properties, I would go into my building and I'd mop the halls myself. And then of course, in today's world, I'll make sure nobody plugs their car into my building to charge it. So in other words, you have to reduce expenses. Okay. So sell a few things, reduce your expenses. Now, you know, was it a good time to buy as well? Or were you kind of just, you know, waiting for the crash to finish? Well, actually I bought most of my real estate in the downtimes, right? So I wasn't waiting for the crash to finish. I was just stabilizing. So once I figured out, okay, I'm going to sell what I have to sell. I'm going to reduce my expenses. I'm going to enforce all my rules. People hate rules, but you can enforce them. It's a bit better. I found people who are on welfare tended to have other people who are on welfare move it with them, but not tell the government. So now you have two or three people in the same unit. That's illegal. So therefore, I was able to get them out on that process. But once that was all stabilized, the patient is stable, then I went looking for good deals and not for deals on the market, deals that were not, that people didn't even think of selling. So I knocked on their doors and I said, hey, I want to buy a property. And I bought most of my best deals in the downtimes, like now, once I stabilized. Okay. So stabilize first and then purchase. Now, what happened to rents? You know, when you look back at all the different cycles, when it was, you know, on a downward tra trajectory or, you know, there was some instability, like were rents, let's just say for Ontario, for example, and we could do for Alberta and BC or the different markets that you were invested in, but what happened to them? So in the past, rents always went down. The issue with rents today is inventory and that there's 450,000 people coming to Canada every single year. When they're going to Ontario, they're going to Alberta, they're going to BC, and some of them now are going out to, you know, Eastern Canada, which was not the big play. So rents in the past were going down. Today, rents are going up because there's no inventory. And by the way, that's the one thing I forgot to mention. Usually... 
a house stays on the market about three or four months. Today, houses are on the market 21 days. That's not a crash. Right. Yes, the prices have come down, but inventory on the market for 21 days is a joke. Three or four months, like it was in Alberta about four years ago, that's real. But rents usually go down. Today, they've gone up. Yeah. I mean, we still have a supply issue. Now, are you seeing that across Canada today? with your current investments that you've got across the country? Yeah, I see it in BC, Alberta, Ontario, because people generally want to still move there. My Saskatoon properties, my, my Manitoba properties are a little bit down. I don't have anything in Eastern Canada, but I have been looking at it very carefully. That's on its way up a bit. So generally, it's where people want to move to. And wherever they want to move when they're flooding in, those rents are going pretty high. Now, back then, I didn't have what you're doing, you know, any kind of short-term rents or three-month rents. Like, that's amazing stuff. But my mind wasn't working that way all those years ago. My mind was like, you're in for a year or two, three, you know, just very basic way of thinking. Long-term leases versus short and mid-term opportunities, definitely. Okay. So right now, you know, as we're in 2023, like, what are you currently working on? How are you pivoting? for, you know, where we're at right now? So my pivot is different than what I'd say most people's pivot would be because I've done the houses, I've done the buildings, I've built the buildings, I've done the self-storage, I've done the strip plazas, multifamily buildings. I'm going into warehousing, which means I'll be building 80,000 square foot warehouses, 34 foot high ceilings. I'm going to deck them all out and then rent them to large companies as their warehousing space. Now, this is not self-storage. This is warehousing, 15-year triple net leases. Because once you get to my stage or even my young age, when I look at a tenant and I'm talking to tenants, I want to cry and chop it to the neck. And that's what happens after all these years, right? So for me, I'm not in the tenant game anymore, which I think you should be if you're an investor. I think you should go through it. But prior to this, I would have been probably buying multifamily, so six to 24 units. And if you can do some kind of short-term stays or mid-term rentals in a multifamily building, that would be amazing. So now you're into storage units, different things, development. I think you're doing some stuff in Belize as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I build in Belize. I have three houses in Florida, which I'm going to sell. I've had them for about 23 years in Cape Coral. Everyone's going to Cape Coral, Florida, right? Everybody thinks Florida is the play. And that probably is the right play. For me, I like safety or stabilization because my portfolio is already built. Last year, my properties were destroyed by last year, maybe four months ago, five months ago, they were hit with a hurricane on the Gulf side. The Gulf of Mexico was like one degree warmer. Mm -hmm. That means that every single year now is going to keep coming in again and again. And if I were to stay there in Florida, it's like parking with a person who never accepts responsibility, or it's never their fault. The weather, it's never their fault. It's, they don't make that responsibility, but the weather comes in and destroys your property. So I'm probably going to switch more to Arizona because I have properties there. Unfortunately, Arizona is now dry. So <laughs> too much water in one place, it's dry in the other. It's like you can't win, but that's part of investing in real estate. And both of those states that you mentioned, Florida and Arizona, I believe are, you know, a little bit more landlord-friendly states, you know, yes. the pendulum swings in the favor of landlords in the sense that, you know, you don't have to wait 10, 12 months for non-paying tenants to get evicted there. The process is much, much faster. 
Exactly. And it's more of a business-friendly state as well. And I like rules, but they have sufficiently low enough rules that you can literally still run a good business. Awesome. So you're doing that. You're working on storage units. Now, the storage units that you're looking at, are you looking at that in Canada or out of country? Well, I mean, I already have self-storage units, so I've just been maintaining them. It's very difficult to buy self-storage units in Ontario because the pricing of the land has gone up tremendously. And so therefore, I would probably look in the U.S. for that. The reason why they have three-story self-storage buildings is because if in the past an acre of land was half a million, and now it's 1.5 million, you literally have to go up three stories to make money. So those large 144,000 square foot buildings you see everywhere popping up, that's, that's what you have to do to really make it work here in Canada. You can still survive with the lower level units throughout the U.S. Again, still storage is a great business for Canada also, but I would probably do it in the U.S. Less maintenance, so I can do it at a distance a lot easier. Okay. All right. Awesome. So, so because you've been doing this for, you know, 39 plus years, and I think you've done probably every single kind of real estate investing, maybe not short-term and mid-term, but, you know, everything else along the way. There's a lot of people right now trying to figure out how they can bring the cash flow back, right? With rates that have increased so much, expenses that have increased so much in general, the inflation, you know, obviously the cash flow versus, you know, today versus a year ago is quite different from for many investors that had properties that they were holding, especially if they were on the variable rates. What are some things that you could suggest that they could do to, you know, maybe bring the cash flow back? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you could reduce your expenses. You can try to, you know, manage your repairs, but bringing the cash flow back is very difficult. People, I think, would have to have a system like that you do, you know, the midterm, short-term rental if possible. But if not, because you're locked into very long, long-term tenants, they may have to get a side hustle. And that side hustle may not even be real estate related. Now, a real estate related side hustle is to find a great deal off market and wholesale it. And if you pick up, you know, six to $10,000 or even 20K on a wholesale, even if you don't want to do it, the fact is $24,000 on a wholesale is $2,000 a month. That makes your cash flow more reasonable. It's not cash flowing on the property that you wholesale, but it compensates as a side hustle for the, prop, the money you're losing. Then, you know, limited coaching where somebody comes in and like, if you've been in for a few years, you can help somebody move from point A to point B for a few thousand dollars, which will help offset your losses. Or you find people like, like for instance, you have Inspire Beach, which is, a, I think, a great resort. And there are people who have a lot of, you know, opportunities that, let's say I approached you and said, hey, Sarah, if I can bring, let's say, four or five parties to your Inspire Beach, can I get, you know, can I be respected in a tangible way for that? that that's a side hustle in a sense. In other words, finding people who have done great things and then saying, hey, you know what? Sure, I'm sure you're booked solid, but can I assist you in what you're doing? Whether it's what you're doing or whether it's somebody who has a large building and they have an issue filling it up, trying to solve other people's problems as a side thing will help you to offset what you have and the situation you're living right now. Does that sort of make sense? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. 
experience inspire beach resort it is the resort that we have been building and it is ready so if you are looking to host events team building opportunities retreats of your own and just even potentially hang out with your friends or family or colleagues you can rent out a cabin you can rent out the entire resort inspire beach resort it is an adults only it is canada's only themed resort specifically for adults and the themes are really nice they're really upscale like you have like the beach theme you've got a rustic lodge theme and a vintage hollywood and we are adding more every year but there is uh, an awesome space that is on the water to host your retreats your events your business meetings planning meetings all of that good stuff so check that out inspirebeachresorts.com now back to the show yeah no adding side hustles adding other income sources you know, businesses, you know, if you're working a job, you know, again, you know, maybe you can negotiate a raise <laughs> as <Yeah>. an example, <laughs> but you know, like, or you got to look at your portfolio and you can say, okay, you know, does it make sense to maybe re-amortize over a longer period of time? Does it make sense to move the mortgage over to someone that might be a little bit more competitive? Does it make sense to sell? You know, and this is one of the things that like, this is why I was so big on cash flow. And you've always heard like, You've got to have some cash flow because, you know, back when things were good and people were like, oh, you know what, I'm cash flow negative, like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. But like, I've got the lift and, you know, I'm looking at, you know, at the lift essentially. And then all of a sudden, you know, the hundred, you know, or $200 loss a month becomes a thousand with these new rates. And that's a whole different story. And so if, you know, if you had some cash flow, at least to start in the beginning, you're not, you know, bleeding as much as I think as somebody who was already in the negative with the low rates and all of a sudden they're even more negative with these new rates. No, it's very true. Or even finding some people who have lots of equity in their homes who can still borrow a little bit of money and maybe they come to the table, help you pay down a portion of your mortgage at the end of the year, right? Because sometimes there's a little small window that people can pay down. Or maybe someone who has equity in their property, I mean, if it makes sense financially, to come on as a partner and pay out a mortgage with their equity, if it makes sense. And it'll be a partner. So it's like a joint venture after the fact. There's a lot of people right now who, let's say they're like 45 to 48. You know what? After COVID, all the time they spent together, now they're divorced. And now they've split their assets and they're sitting there with an asset, maybe some money, and they can't do much about it. They're afraid to invest in something new. Why not come alongside and maybe you can sort of have them JV with you after the fact. You know, like, like that could work as well. When I buy buildings today, I'm looking for buildings with assumable mortgages, ones that are still, you know, probably three years left at about three and a half percent or eight years left at an old CMHC 1.9% mortgage that I can assume. Right. That makes sense for me, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, can then see if you can convert anything to midterm executive rental stays or short-term rentals. Again, if there's no bylaws with 28 days or less, but, you know, there are things that can be done. You know, if you're in a place where there's rent control, you know, look outside the box, right? So would you want to put a long-term tenant in those units? Because like, I think just going back to even what you were saying before, there's no inventory. You know, this is a time where rents are likely not going down along the way. This is likely not a time where the house market is going to correct as much just because of all the new immigration that we are having come into the country, which is totally fine. But, you know, it's a supply and demand issue. And so... Um, you know, looking at like the rents, for example, if you can only raise it by 2.5%, like why would you put a long-term tenant in there that's going to be there for 10 years if we are expecting 15% year-over-year growth or 10% year-over-year growth in, in terms of rents? Because 
at some points they're going to be, you know, quite behind. So is it better to bite the bullet and furnish something, go midterm on it instead, which is like monthly stays month to month. And usually they're going to be homeowners that are in between houses or like, can you do some short term stuff? And then I think once rents stabilize a little bit more, then you can at that point in time, you can convert it back to long term if you really wanted to. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. If you can do midterm, that's the play. It makes a lot of sense. You're flexible. If that tenant works out to be, you know, like a goofball, then they're out in about three months, right? Or whatever a midterm usually is, right? Yeah. I mean, like you just have to make sure that you're not putting a tenant that's just like being evicted into those units either. Some, some, you know, checks and balances that you still have to do along the way. But I like the strategy. I mean, CMHC also has that MLI program, which helps as yeah. well with the cash flow. So if you could do something like that um, and exit, you know, you could exit with 50 years amortizations, depending on, you know, the points that you collect with the program. But if I think someone's going to do midterm or short term, they should find somebody who is like an expert on that. Like for instance, I'm not an expert on that. So if somebody came to me and said, hey, can you teach me midterm? Although it looks pretty straightforward, everything looks easy to begin with. I'd say, no, nope, no, nope. find somebody who teaches that, experiences it, lives it. Because if they make mistakes, then their midterm might end up being a long-term, especially there's a lot of pros out there. So if they're going to do midterm, find someone who specializes in that stuff. Guess what? Sometimes you have to pay to play. So, I mean, if I was looking into that, I'd definitely pay to play that game because it's very easy to think you're doing it right and get stuck into a long-term lease by some professional tenant. Yeah. You know, like, like someone might say, hey, you know what? You know, you know, a bad situation just happened in my family. Can I stay an extra month? Well, who knows? Maybe that can throw things out of whack, right? For sure. So in a time like this, what types of real estate investing strategies do you think that likely will work better than others? I mean, we we'll talk, we talked about short-term, we talked about mid-term, those are rental yeah. strategies, but I mean like real estate investing strategies. Do you think like student rentals could be something that's worth looking at, rent to own, the burrs, like what, what seems to be working now in, in 2023, according to you? Well, I mean, the wholesale concept is great. If I were to go back into houses again, what I would do is probably find baby boomers and then find young people between 23 and 33 who have a pretty darn good job, but they can't afford to buy a property. And I might say the property is, let's keep it simple. We'll make it 1 million bucks. Just keep it simple. And I'd probably have the boomer put 150K down and have the younger person put 50K down. So that's about 20% of a million. And then the boomer co-signed that loan so now that young person has a chance to rent a house, but that house must have some kind of a basement apartment in it. Now, the basement apartment is just going to go towards the mortgage and whatever is left over not being paid, then the boomer and that younger family, they split the difference. Over the next five years, the property goes up in value. Then, you know, keep in mind that the person who was living there, the younger family, they cover all utilities, all expenses, they cover everything, repairs. They manage the tenant below. And then five years from now, you know, guess what? The vines have gone back up, you refinance, the boomer pulls your money back out. Because I think the problem is a lot of young people cannot buy properties today. And a lot of boomers are sitting on lots of equity. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the time or effort or energy to deal with renting to strangers. So I think I would try to create a strategy, give it a nice name, you know, hand me up real estate, some kind of name, you know. I'm not going to these names. I don't know. Let's call it boomer hack or something. It's <laughs> yeah, literally yeah. someone who's got the equity and the money, but not the time. Someone who wants to get into a house, you bring them together, 50, 50K down, 150 from the other side, 50-50 split. They have to get their money back, of course, the 150 back. 
tenant in the basement to help with the rent. And then you split the difference, sell the property. Yeah, I'd probably work on that strategy. And let's call it a bootcamp hack or something. Did you just come up with that right now? Or did yeah, you have- I made it like right now on the spot. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, it's not far-fetched, but like, you know, as you're th- thinking of this, so like, let's just say you are, you know, you have no, like, you like just like to re- like, kind of like, just go off of what you said. So you've got a baby boomer that has equity in the house, but they can't unlock it. Right. And well, no, no. But like, if they can't unlock it, I think that there's a need. Yeah. So if you've got somebody with a good T4 income job, right. you know, they come in, they can build their units in the basement and hold the mortgage and refinance. And then that money maybe gets split between the boomer maybe and the, you know, millennial or whatever you call the other generation, Gen Zs. And maybe at the 50-50, maybe it's some kind of joint venture partner ship of some sort. Yeah, I agree. Five it, years it, they sell, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I mean, obviously we have to sit down and work out the little intricate details, but it's time for something that's not on the board is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I was actually looking at because like, <laughs> I think like once in a while you kind of get like, not bored, but you like start thinking like, what other strategies are there? And I started thinking of some, you know, and I'll talk about it at some point because I still have to iron out the details, but there's a lot of new immigration coming in. They can't really buy anything much for the next, you know, two years, give or take. So I think there's some opportunity there to figure something out as well. Well, that boomer hack that you just invented with me, that could help them. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think that there's a few things. I don't want to talk about it yet because I still have to, de- like, I still want to develop and figure out what the pros and cons are. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with new strategies like midterm rentals. Like that wasn't really a thing. And sure, there were like some small companies that were doing it or like, you know, a couple investors here and there that were maybe like doing it more for like executive furnished rentals or like more corporate. But to go to, you know, more the masses, that's still fairly new, you know, whether it's years or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a thing because banks like long term tenants, but to survive today, you still have to have a short term tenant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And talk to your mortgage broker, like also about like how to do this, because, you know, this is why you do need a mortgage broker on your side so that they can position the portfolio and the properties accordingly. So, all right, I'm going to do a lightning round with you, but you know, we're going to switch it up because like you've been on this show for, I don't know how many times, and I'm just going to make up my questions on the spot. Are you ready (laughs) to play the lightning rounds? Switch it up on me. Switch it up. Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. This week, we talk about why you should choose to stay in a midterm rental. A midterm rental is a fully furnished, quality assured property that you can rent when you are in need of a place to stay and your home is not available. You could be between moves, buying or selling your house. You could be between a divorce, moving to a new country and you need a place while you look for a longer term stay. You could be between renovations and need a home to stay while your home is being improved. In all of these cases, the midterm rental property is the right choice because we are a one-stop shop where all of your communication, your needs, and your stay will be handled by our expert team. We have a white glove service that offers additional concierge services during your stay. For more information, please contact www.midtermrentalproperties.com. All right. So here's question number one. 
what is your motivation for, you know, being in real estate for 39 plus years? What's the reason for doing it? Okay. You know, everybody wants to know their why, right? Yeah. So I know my why, but it's because real estate is my rocket ship, but my fuel changes. So from just quickly from 16 to 27, I had a different fuel. I wanted to feel equal because I'm, you know, I feel like an outsider. When that fuel burnt up, I was kind of spinning for a while. Then I got my next set of fuel. I liked nice things. I bought a lot of nice things. And then my next set of fuel, my daughter came along being a great dad. So what it is, the fuel keeps changing. Once I've satisfied myself as a certain, I've achieved something, I have new fuel now. My fuel is more legacy fuel. I'm looking so that 50 years from now, I made a difference. Okay. All right. Very cool. Number two, if you had somebody coming to you, brand new investor today, and they wanted to get started, what are like three things that you would recommend that they start by doing? Okay. They have to start living in the moment, right? Living in the past, not, you know, dreaming about the future. Because if you live in the moment, like for me right now, I spend 60% of my time alone and 40% of my time with people. And people say, well, how do you spend 60% of your time alone? Well, there are people who live with other people, even have kids, and they're still alone. Alone meaning they don't get support. They're not, you know, they they don't get motivation or appreciation. But when I spend my time alone, I'm listening to things. I'm listening to people. I'm thinking of what I'm doing. I'm learning lessons from whatever I've done. And then the 40% of the time that I'm spending with people, I'm a recluse, but I'm a recluse who is, I'm an extrovert, which means when I'm outside talking to people, I love talking to people. When I'm inside my house, I don't want to talk to anybody. But when I'm outside, I'm talking to people. I love the moment. I enjoy it tremendously. So I'm going to tell them, number one, make sure they spend that time listening to what's happening and then paying attention to where they are when they're outside. And number two, ask questions. Talk to strangers. So I talk to strangers all the time. Even someone on the street, I might stop and talk to them. When you talk to strangers, you become better at talking to strangers. And number two, opportunities pop up. Then number three, behave to act on things. If I see a great property, I'll stop the car, turn into the driveway, knock on the door, and ask a question. And it's not always the worst property on the street. It could sometimes be the best property on the street because that person's, their canvas is painted full. They want something next, but that's the three. Okay. All right. Awesome. I, I talk, I talk a lot. Don't no, I? that's okay. That's all good. <laughs> you can expand as much as you want in making these questions up. So it's not like you had the chance to prepare. Yeah. Number three, what is your favorite property that you have today? I would say my self-storage. I love the self-storage. It, uh, it's easy to run, easy to maintain. I don't have to worry about fridges, stoves. I don't have to worry about kids or pets. I like kids, but not that much. I don't have to worry about pets. I don't have to worry about fridges or stoves. And you know what? It's pretty straightforward to maintain. So if you can get, that's a good thing to to do. And I'm just so happy that years and years ago, from 2001 to 2009, I ended up buying multifamily buildings where people said to me, oh, that's scary. That's expensive. Well, you know, I bought them all dirt cheap. Right now, my equity is 60% equity on most of my buildings because they tripled in value when I paid down my mortgage. So when people tell you don't do something, don't listen. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my things here. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. okay. That was question number three, right? So we're doing question number four now? Correct. <laughs> Do it. All right. Question number four. What are you currently reading or listening to? Well, listening to, that's the funny thing. I tend to spend 
like sometimes five months listening to nothing, reading zero. Because what I'm doing is I'm listening to myself. I'm replaying situations that have happened in my past. Why did things work? Why did things fail? And I'm actually trying to understand me better. So right now I'm currently reading me, just going through the last six months and just saying, man, I didn't I see that? What is going on? How come I missed that? I should have known that. I did that before. So yeah, from reading me right now. Okay, right. It's the first time you, I ever get that answer, but, or I ever have received that answer, but all good. Well, well we, all have to re- we all have to read ourselves. You know, you know a farmer. Yeah, yeah. Wait, it's, I'm not debating it. I'm just saying oh, first, okay. the first answer <laughs> for sure. All right. And last question, number five. Give me an example of like your morning routine. Morning routine. Well, I wake up at 6.30. I, the first thoughts of my brain, I write down because I have what's called lucid dreams. And lucid dreams, it's nothing sexual. It's just a dream that your brain almost thinks you're, you're awake. And then and I can solve problems in that scenario. And I write it down right away. Because if I, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. And most of my solutions come in the morning. Then I literally, you know, lately I've been walking blocks. Now I have to increase that to about a couple of kilometers, but I'm working up to it. And then I'm setting up my meal plan for the day, which these things I haven't been doing before. Yeah, but when you put on 20, 30 pounds, you have to now get towards that. And then I'm actually laying my day out. Just really quickly, I used to write everything on a whiteboard. I was never into buying apps, but now I forced myself to buy an app and start putting all my stuff into a CRM so that my phone calls are all on time and things like that. All right. Okay. All right. Cool. Because I, I used to use a whiteboard before. All right. Thanks for playing the lightning rounds and giving us lots and lots of details about those answers. Where can my listeners reach out and find out more, Matthew? Well, you can also go to my website, which is rccsol.com. So, you know, I guess that's the fastest way to, to find me. Or my email, Matthew with one T, M-A-T-H-E-W dot F and at rccsol.com. Amazing. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, uh, thanks for being a regular guest. I feel like I have you at least once a year, so... Congrats on on your success and, you know, also on the longevity that you've been doing this for and the ability to, you know, help give us some insights on the ups and down cycles. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always great being on your show. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.